This morning we turn the corner in our tour of the Museum of Faith of Hebrews 11 and we enter into a new corridor, the Hall of the Patriarchs. We will linger in this hall for two weeks, journeying from verse 8 all the way through verse 22. We will dedicate one week to the life of Abraham, and then we will give a second week to a comprehensive look at all of the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and down to Joseph. But before we resume this tour of the gallery of faith, let's take a moment and And remind ourselves of why we are here. Why we are here in this famed museum of faith of Hebrews 11. We are here aggressively seeking an answer to the question of what it means to live by faith. And that question was provoked by the author's use of Habakkuk 2.4, which he quoted in Hebrews 10.38. Okay, it says this. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. My righteous one, God says, shall live by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the author of Hebrews gathers his congregation together, and he encourages them by saying, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of our soul. And then he says, let me tell you what this faith looks like and what it looks like when somebody lives by faith. And that's what all of Hebrews 11 is. So the question of what it means to live by faith is an intensely, immensely, relevant question for every single person who is here this morning because what we're talking about is eternal destinies and everlasting realities. Because in the end, according to the author's own words in verses 38 and 39, there are only those who shrink back to destruction and those who have faith to the preserving of their soul. There are only the shrinker backs, shrinkers back, who are destroyed at the coming of Christ and in the day of judgment, and those who persevere in their faith and are saved in the day of judgment. There is no one who, when Christ returns, will be found in some third intermediary category. In other words, living by faith is not some higher plane of the Christian life that we're seeking to examine, as if having faith is what saves and living by faith is what really pleases God. No, 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 I want you to see this. Living by faith is synonymous with being a Christian. For saving faith is not some moment in the past decision to ask Jesus into my heart that that has no effect on my life ongoing. Living by faith, faith, saving faith, is entering into a radically different way of living in relation to God. And that's what I want us to see as we journey through Hebrews chapter 11. The purpose of Hebrews 11 is to illustrate what this radically different way of life looks like. 
with this radically different way of life that is, that is summarized by those two repeated words, a life that is lived by faith. What does it look like? And we're going to see that displayed for us by means of numerous examples from redemptive history. And there is no figure in all of the Bible that more exemplifies the life of faith than that of Abraham. In the scriptures, Abraham serves as the prototypical believer. He's the father of the faithful. The most frequently cited example of what it means to believe God with all of your life and strength. And what is the reward of such a life of faith? I want to summarize it by a description that is applied to Abraham three times in Scripture. Three times, twice in the Old Testament and once in the New, in James 2.23, Abraham is called the friend of God. Can you wrap your mind around that? The friend of God. What does that kind of fellowship with your Creator and Redeemer look like? Because whatever Abraham had, I want that. I want to be God's friend, and so do you. So let's turn our attention to these portraits of the friend of God, Abraham, that we may learn what kind of faith it is that that wins God's friendship and causes him to say at the very end of our passage today, I am not ashamed to be called his God. Don't you want that to be on the lips of Christ on the day of your judgment? I'm not ashamed to be called her God. We're friends. So let's walk through this second corridor and let's look at Abraham, the friend of God. The first portrait to which we come depicts a A grizzled yet vigorous man of about 75. He's aged, but he's strong. And he's he's living in the midst of the rich and fertile soil of the lower Mesopotamian Delta in the culturally advanced city of Ur of the Chaldeans. I, I want to disabuse us of any notion that Abraham was living in Ur seeking God. He wasn't. Romans 3.11 declares just unilaterally there is none who seeks for God, not even Abraham, the father of the faithful. So Abraham's story does not begin with Abraham seeking God. Abraham's story begins with God seeking Abraham. In fact, we know of Abraham in his pre-call days that he was from a family of idolaters. We know that from Joshua 24. A family that worshipped the Chaldean moon god, whose chief temple, or ziggurat, was located there in the center of, of Ur, of the Chaldeans. But even though Abraham was not seeking for God, God was seeking for him. God God chose him. 
He chose Abraham out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. And he chose him for no other reason than out of his mere sovereign good pleasure. He determined, I'm going to bless Abraham. And through Abraham, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth. So the story of Abraham's faith does not begin with Abraham. It begins with God. And the story of your life of faith does not begin with you, it begins with God. And that's the starting place from which we must begin. God chose him, God sought him, and in time, God called him out of Ur, out of his moon-worshipping paganism. God called him, and God saved him. Now, what form God's call of Abraham took, we don't know. But in some way, the God of glory appeared to Abraham in power and summoned his allegiance. For we read this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God appeared to Abraham and he said, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how did Abraham respond to this call from a God whom he did not know, whom he did not seek, and whom he did not worship? This God who suddenly and out of nowhere revealed himself in glory and promised astounding blessing and summoned forth unconditional obedience. Well, we read in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. When God called, Abraham believed, and in his faith, Abraham obeyed. So the first portrait of Abraham reveals to us that faith obeys God's call. The evidence of true faith is that it radically alters the direction of a person's life. Just look at the picture, the before and after picture of Abraham. Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan living in luxury in Mesopotamian Ur. Then God called. God interrupted this, this life that had been going on for 75 years and for generations prior to that. God interrupted everything and suddenly here's Abraham leaving behind his family, his homeland, his people, his idols, everything he knew and lives the remainder of his life in tents in the strange and faraway land of Canaan. Radically changed his life because that's what faith does. Why would Abraham do such a thing? God called. God appeared and God called and God promised. And so Abraham believed and he obeyed and he went. True faith radically alters the course of a believer's life because true faith results in obedience to the call and the command of God. Richard Phillips writes, quote, 
God calls us not merely to believe some abstract fact about God. God calls us to obey His call and to follow Him. And there is a difference. And many, many populating 21st century middle American churches have not found that difference. But we're going to. We can press in a little further than that, though. Okay, so the main point of verse 8, you can just sort of put this over there. The main point of verse 8 is that God calls, faith obeys. Well, we're going to go a little bit deeper with some of the phrases that are found in verse 8 because there's more to learn about what it means to obey God's call, about this obedient faith of Abraham. First thing I want to point out to you is that an obedient faith is born out of a vision of God's glory. An obedient faith is born out of a vision of God's glory. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't just appear out of a vacuum. It doesn't appear out of the, out of the recesses of, of Abraham's heart or any of ours, our hearts. God appears and faith is born. Now, what did Abraham see that caused him to leave behind everything he knew and loved and follow a God that he just met whom he did not know. What did he see? Well, we don't get much from Genesis 12, but Stephen is recounting the call of Abraham in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, and Stephen says this, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. So what did Abraham see? He saw the glory of God. You will not obey God's call. You will not follow him until you are convinced that he is supremely glorious and eminently worthy of your allegiance. That is why my job as a pastor is not primarily to stand up here and give you lists of things to do, and then another week give you lists of things to not do. That's not my primary job. There are, there are commands in Scripture. Do not get me wrong, and we will cover them in the course of time, but my primary job as a preacher is to show you the glory of God revealed in His Son through the Word. Because when you have seen His glory, you will follow Him to death for the sheer joy of entering into the presence of His glory forever. That's why the content of my prayers in the preparation of preaching and the content of my prayers before I deliver a sermon is not so much, Lord, teach them how to live. It's, Lord, open their eyes that they may behold their God. Open their ears that they may hear His call. Open their heart to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
They don't see glory. And so what we pray for and what we preach for here at this church is that you would see glory. So Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and he says, even though there's, there's a mass of unbelieving humanity out here and they're just walking around veiled and blinded and the gospel is preached and they don't see any glory in it. Jesus is proclaimed and, and they don't see him as beautiful and they don't see him as, as a treasure. He says, we just keep right on preaching. We preach, he says, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, hold him up before you, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. And he says, and then the strangest thing happens when we preach like that. The same God who said light shall shine forth in the darkness shines his light into your hearts and you see glory in the face of Christ. You must encounter the glory of God in the gospel of his son before you will believe and obey and follow and forsake everything to walk this life of faith. I just want you to know what we're praying for during the week before we gather here for the time of the message. We pray that we would see glory because an obedient faith is born of a vision of God's glory. Second, an obedient faith obeys immediately. The call of God, in other words, demands a response. It demands decisive action. And faith, born of a vision of the glory of God in the gospel, obeys. It's just cause and effect. See glory, seek glory. See, seek. Call, obey. And this is seen in verse 8 by the way that the participle, you say, what's that? Okay, it's, it's there when it says, when he was called, he obeyed. It gives you a timing. When did he obey? Not 10 years later, not 20 years later. He obeyed when he was called because that's what faith does. I've got Luke 9 ringing in my ears. Luke 9 is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's got a lot of people coming up and offering to follow him like this. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is calling forth an immediate faith. No delay, no negotiations. An immediate, decisive response of faith. An unconditional surrender of allegiance. Third, an obedient faith obeys sacrificially. Faith involves sacrifice. It's synonymous with denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. That's that's faith. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham left behind his family and his wealth and his security and his home and his comfort and his fields and his familiar surroundings. And everything that the world prizes, Abraham just dropped it like a hat and left. He forsook it all for the sake of God's call and for the sake of God's promise. And so mark this down, beloved. Look up here. There is no faith without sacrifice. Faith costs us something. And if the faith that we have in Christ never costs 
it will never save. Saving faith changes your life. It reorients your priorities. It causes you to take risks that seem utterly irrational to the world. Living by faith results in a life that makes absolutely no sense to those who do not have faith. So I think we should ask ourselves this morning, what is there about my life that would not be so were Christ not my Savior and King? Ask yourself that. What is there about my life that would not be that way were I not following Jesus as my Savior and King? How is my life different by virtue of the fact that God is my treasure and my delight and not stuff? God is my treasure and not stuff, and that is shown in my life by, and you fill in the blank. Because there ought to be something there. My heart's desire is that we would be a church that causes people to scratch their heads in wonder and confusion at some of the choices that we make. Why is he spending his vacation time to go and evangelize and plant churches in Cuba? Don't they have their own evangelists in Cuba? Why, why are they adopting a child who has no parents when they've already got a couple kids? Don't they know they're just adopting trouble? Why would they downsize from their dream home and purchase a smaller home so that they can send their children to a Christian school where both of them went and where one of them met Christ? By the way, all three of those are choices that are made by First Baptist Nixon members. Living by faith. And my prayer is that those type of choices would be multiplied in our midst. Because faith demands sacrifice. Fourth, an obedient faith obeys unconditionally. Abraham obeyed call, God's call, according to verse 8, and went out, and this is crazy for us planners, not knowing where he was going. Who does that? Abraham, Abraham did not demand answers and assurances before he would obey. He saw God's glory, he heard God's call, and he believed and he trusted he said, I don't know where God is leading me, but I want to be wherever he is. That, that is the faith of a friend of God. I don't know where this life is taking me, but as long as he is leading me, I'm going to go. So faith obeys God's call. Got to move on to the second portrait. We could linger there longer. We don't have time. Second portrait. So Abraham set out from Ur of the Chaldeans and followed God to the land of Canaan. So the second portrait, the setting of it is, is vastly different than the previous one. Gone 
is the Mesopotamian city of Ur with its solid mud brick homes with foundations, you know, actually sitting on foundations. Gone is, is the advanced culture of Ur, the wealth, the fertile soil. Now we see Abraham and his, and his family living in tents on a Canaan, Canaanite hillside. There's no safety, there's no security, there's no city wall to protect them from intruders. His home, his world, his livelihood is exposed and impermanent and vulnerable and transient. This is the promised blessing. It's what I would be thinking 25 years in. This is the promised blessing. Yet Abraham believed, verses 9 and 10. By faith he lived and lived and lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The main point the author wants us to take away from this second portrait is the motivation behind Abraham's strange nomadic lifestyle. Okay, by faith, Abraham lived as a stranger, foregoing the comfort and the security and the stability of city life. By faith, he lived a life of risk, exposed to marauding robbers and warring kings and cities that may or may not take kindly to him dwelling outside of their city walls and pasturing his flocks in their lands. Just danger. And by faith he endured that, living this life of radical Godward obedience. Why? Why? Verse 10, you want to underline it. Here's the reason. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham lived in tents because he was looking ahead to, he was pursuing, he was seeking, he was desiring, he was awaiting the city of God. What's that? Well, it's a theme throughout Scripture. You can trace it like a thread from Genesis to Revelation. It's Zion, the heavenly city. Galatians 4.26 calls it the Jerusalem that is above. It's the seat of God's kingdom. According to Revelation 21, it's the holy city which will come down out of heaven from God when Christ returns to make all things new. It is the capital of God's unshakable kingdom which now is heavenly and spiritual but at the return of Christ will be earthly and physical. In the new heavens and new earth. It's the final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham of a land where God would dwell in the midst of his redeemed people. That's the city of God. The city of God is where God dwells with his people, with his friends. So to seek God's city, catch this is not to seek streets of gold and mansions for our own private enjoyment. 
To seek God's city is to seek God who built the city and who dwells in the city. So we get here to the essence of faith once again. Faith is seeking God's city. Which is the same thing as to say that faith is seeking God. Desiring Him above all else. That's why, the author says, that's why Abraham forsook all and lived this transient, nomadic, tent-dwelling life. Because God had called him to the celestial city. To borrow from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And as we know from Pilgrim's Progress, you cannot enter the celestial city until you first leave the city of destruction. With all of its comforts and its security and its safety and its treasures and its gods. This is what faith does. Faith seeks God's city. That is is where the believer sets his hope. The believer's hope then is not in earthly security and comfort and homes made of brick and and healthy families and and wealthy bank accounts and prestige in the community and, and political power. That's not where our security lies. And that's not where our hope is anchored. Our hope is in Christ and Christ is in Zion. And so that's where our citizenship is and that's where our heart belongs. We live by faith in order that we may enter through Zion's gate and receive our everlasting inheritance, which is Christ himself, the reward received by all who are faithful unto death. So the question that we ask ourselves as we stand before the second portrait is this. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Where's your security? Where... Where is your desire? Is it above in the city of God or is it below in Ur of the Chaldeans? Is your hope in the God who owns the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them or is your hope in your bank account and in your IRA? Is your hope In the God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611? Or is your hope and your joy found in all the digital pleasures and creature comforts of 21st century America? Where's your hope? Because it's it's only when your hope is located in Zion, when your treasure and your delight and your security is in the city of God, it is only then that your heart, set on the everlasting inheritance of Christ, is free to live a life of radical faith that confuses the world around you. Only when your hope is situated in the city of God and is not enslaved to things, cars, Phones, computers, TVs, homes. Only when your hope is not enslaved to those things and is set and anchored 
in the city of God, are you free to live a life of radical faith and God-glorifying obedience? Only then are you free to live a life that has any enduring significance beyond the grave. Until then, you're merely a slave to the things of this world. And many of us are. A slave to comfort, a slave to iPhones, and a slave to SUVs and a thousand other things that dominate our affections. Listen, Abraham did not spend his life living in tents on a Canaanite hillside because he was crazy. Abraham lived like that because he was free. He did not need the comfort and security and stability in his best life now, which was found in Ur. He knew by faith that he had a better possession awaiting him in the city of God. Third portrait. About 25 years later, after the initial call, and we see a husband and wife. They're older, they're weathered, they're alone. It's been years since God had promised them a son, and yet here they remain, childless and barren. Now Abraham is about 100 years old, Sarah is 90, and and although the aging process seems to have been considerably slower in the early days of human existence, it was still well past the age of childbearing, yet they believed. And though all they had was a word of promise spoken by the God of glory, that word was enough to sustain their faith, so they kept Believing, they kept trying, and in due time, God called forth life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. So, verses 11 and 12 by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, if, if you've read Genesis recently, you may be a little uncomfortable with the author's praise of Abraham and Sarah in this regard. Because according to Genesis, and not once but like three times... Both Abraham and Sarah showed a significant lack of faith with regard to the promise of a son. As exhibited by the whole Hagar and Ishmael affair. But therein lies an encouraging truth if you have eyes to see it. Because what God is calling forth from this church is not a perfect faith, but a persevering faith. Though Abraham and Sarah both stumbled in unbelief and they stumbled in sin, they nevertheless kept believing, kept trying to have a child. And it was their persevering, yet not perfect, faith which God blessed, granting to Sarah the power to conceive a child in her postmenopausal womb. So what lesson do we glean from this third portrait? Faith rests in God's promise and receives, thereby, God's power. Faith receives God's power by faith. 
If you remember back to our study of Galatians, in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, the Apostle Paul took the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, and he constructed an allegory in order to point out the difference between the law and the gospel, between works and faith, between merit and grace, between slavery and freedom. Do you remember that vaguely? He says, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. That is, according to the power of the flesh. They schemed together. They worked together in order to produce a child born of the flesh. Therefore, Ishmael was the product of an attempt to accomplish God's purpose by man's power. He therefore represents slavery, law, striving, self-effort, unbelief, working according to the power of the flesh. Paul says Isaac, on the other hand, because he was born of the power of the Holy Spirit, is therefore the product of God's grace, God's power, accomplishing God's purpose and fulfilling God's promise. Therefore, Isaac represents freedom and promise and grace and faith in God's supernatural power. And what Paul is doing in Galatians 4 is exactly what what the author of Hebrews is doing here in Hebrews 11. Abraham and Sarah, though not in perfect faith, or else there never would have been a Hagar and Ishmael, but in persevering faith, they rested in the promise of God and therefore received from God the power to do what was humanly impossible, what was not possible through natural power and natural strength and natural wisdom. And God's power flowed forth in such supernatural abundance that through Isaac came descendants that cannot be counted. They can't be numbered. They're like the sand of the seashore and of the stars of the heaven. Children and descendants and a family that are born not according to the flesh, but according to grace, through faith, by the power of the Spirit. You, you are the direct descendants of this Fulfillment of the promise. So faith rests in God's power that does stuff like that. Faith rests in God's promise and faith receives God's power. That's the essence of what it means to live by faith. Faith receives God's power to do what is impossible by the power of the flesh. For instance, let's just stay in Hebrews. Faith receives God's power to joyfully accept the seizure of your property, Hebrews 10.32. Faith receives God's power to become fellow sharers in the sufferings of God's people, willingly, Hebrews 10.34. Faith receives God's power to love people more than earthly toys and comfort, And therefore to give generously and sacrificially that they may have the gospel and that their sufferings may be relieved. What what can break the chains of slavery to the things of this world to enable us to live the life of faith? Only the power of God. And the power of God is only received by faith. Faith receives God's power to overcome our innate and natural timidity and to talk to our neighbor or a co-worker or our son or daughter or our spouse about Christ and about his gospel. 
And so I stand before this third portrait of Abraham and Sarah seeing power coursing through her dead womb. And I say, I want that power to course through my life. And I want that power to pulsate through this church. That's what I want. I want the power of God in this church so that we, in this church, we see, we observe marriages that are deader than Sarah's womb coming back to life and bearing much fruit. So that we see those who are enslaved to money and comfort and security and stuff and the pleasures of this world having their eyes lifted up to Zion and to become so God-besotted that their grip on the things of this earth is loosened and they reach out with every ounce of strength that they have for the things of God if only that they may attain it. It only happens by the power of God. I want to see the power of God coursing through this church so that we see people like me, careful, cautious, calculating Christians who never go anywhere without first knowing where they're going and what it's going to cost and what it's going to be like, taking unbelievable risks with their money, their family, and their lives in order that they may pursue the call. I want to see the power of God pulsating through this church so that we see careful, cautious, calculating Christians become risk-taking, life-giving missionaries. That happens in churches just like this one if they walk by faith. And it can happen here. I want to see the power of God pulsating through the people of First Baptist Nixa that we see born unto us a multitude of descendants who have been born of the Spirit through the ministry of the gospel in this church. Do you want the power of God so that things happen in your life that are only attributable to the grace of God and the Spirit of God? Then you must walk by faith. There remain four more portraits of faith. We're going to leave those for next week in this Hall of the Patriarchs. But the author pauses at verse 13, and I want to take two minutes and just walk you through these verses. We'll we'll, we'll come back to them at the beginning of next week's message. But let me just read to you this author's summary. It's like he pauses in between portrait three and four and says, Now, here's what I want you to get from what we've seen so far. Okay, So we're going to close by getting it. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Living by faith means that we obey God's call. And living by faith means that we seek God's city. And living by faith means that we receive God's power. 
living by faith means that we also die in faith. The life of faith means nothing unless it ends in faith. All these, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, all these died in faith. So the question I want to ask is how? How did they and how can we? Because there's an ending to the life of faith where faith is made sight. And if you want your faith made sight and to enter into the gates of the city, you've got to end well. So let me just give you three statements. We die in faith by keeping our eyes fixed on the future reward. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. And and you need to reckon with what that may look like in your life. And you need to believe in such a way so that when you die, you do not die disgruntled in disappointment with the way things turned out. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Joseph, they all died without owning an inch of the land that God had promised. They did not see the multitude of descendants that God had sworn. Jacob went down to Israel with no more than 70 people at the end of his life. But they knew this. They knew that this is the nature of faith. It is a foretaste now. The feast is to come. And faith recognizes that so that it does not die in disillusionment, having not had the feast. So reckon with that. Statement number two, we die by faith or we die in faith by living as strangers and exiles on the earth. So because their their eyes and their hope were fixed on the city of God, they increasingly felt out of place in this present world. They were being transformed by the power of a faith which is the substance, foretaste, of things hoped for and the evidence of things that they couldn't see. Those who die in faith are those who increasingly feel like the city for which they long is more real and more substantial and more to be desired than the city in which they currently dwell in the world in which they currently dwell, which increasingly seems to them vaporous and and shadowy and insubstantial and unsatisfying. You get that? There's a transition taking place. Their heart is being prepared to enter into the city of God by being released from its hold on this world. Therefore, believers are not those who hold super tightly to their possessions because you can't take them with you. And the heart of faith knows you wouldn't want to anyway. Lastly, we die in faith by pursuing the city of God to the very end. No turning back. No returning. Burning our bridges. What What do you think God would have Or what do you think Abraham would have received from God if after 20 years of wandering around in Canaan, he returned to his home in Ur? What do you think he would have received? Nothing. No inheritance, no possession in the land of promise. He would not have received the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. See, faith purchases a one-way ticket and if it shrinks back, God takes no pleasure in him. There's a, there's a very telling scene at the end of Abraham's life where he sends out his servant to find a wife for, for Isaac. And the, and the servant says, that's, that's all well and good, but what if, 
What if she doesn't want to return? What if living on a Canaanite hillside in tents is not super appealing to the young lady? Do you want me to come get Isaac and take him back? And Abraham says, don't you dare do do that. You swear to me you will not take him back. For the believer, the thought of turning away from the city of God and returning to the world is incomprehensible and horrifying. Because they don't belong there anymore. And the result of living like that is verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Not ashamed to receive them into the city that he has been preparing for them from the foundations of the world. Verse 16, here is the reward of the life of faith. Those who are faithful in life and those who are faithful in death. You awaken on the other side of death. Standing before the gates of splendor. Can you see it? Your eyes behold now what they were only able to glimpse from afar as through a glass darkly in this life. It's a beautiful city, a glorious city. And standing there before the gates of Zion, you suddenly feel as if you've awakened from a dream, as if all of the life that came before was just a hazy foreshadowing of this new and glorious and real and substantial and never-ending existence. An existence for which we were created. Suddenly you see the gates fling open, And a voice resounds like the sound of many waters. And it says, come, my chosen one. My beloved. My friend. Enter into the city that I have prepared for you. Then you'll be home. And it will all have been worth it. Our God and Father, by the power of your Spirit, release the hold of the world upon us. Cause us to desire your city. Cause us first to see your glory. I pray for those who have never seen glory that today... They have seen it. That the same God who said light shall shine in the darkness has shown in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Seeing your glory, may they believe and obey and seek and receive the power to live this life of faith and to die in faith. Perform your purpose in our midst this morning. Whatever it may be, may power course through our midst. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.